Well, the do-it-yourself craze is in full swing. Lowe's and Home Depot and HGTV and the Magnolia Network that used to be called the DIY Network, everyone's cashing in on it. Um, And no matter what project you uh, might want to tackle, there's a pretty good chance you'll find something on Pinterest to help. And if not Pinterest, uh, you'll more than likely find a YouTube channel for, um, find a video of the exact thing, the exact make and model of your car, household appliance, or uh, home repair project. Um, It's so popular right now that do-it-yourself, the hyphenated word, is actually now in the dictionary. And it is defined as the activity of doing or making something without professional training or assistance. More broadly, it means an activity in which one does something for oneself or on one's own initiative. For the most part, doing things yourself is not a bad idea. Um, It can save you a little money, and it can also uh, be satisfying to tackle a project and then stand back and, and see what you've done. Kids, you know how that feels when you clean your room, right? Take a step back and and marvel at, at, at what you've done, kind of like I do when I step back and, and uh, look at my truck when I've changed the brakes or when I look at the fish that I've caught on a fly that I've tied. It can be good, but doing things yourself isn't always good. Doing things yourself isn't always positive. Um, if you've ever said, never mind, I'll do it myself, probably wasn't positive. Or if you said, if you want something done right, you just have to do it yourself, probably wasn't a good thing. Or if you've been promised something by a sovereign God and grew impatient and took matters into your own hands to secure what had been promised, probably not a good thing. And that's exactly what we're going to see Sarai do tonight. She grew, up, she grew impatient with the Lord. She was tired of waiting on the offspring, tired of waiting on the son that had been promised. So she decided to take matters into her own hands. She did something not just without professional help, but without divine assistance. And she took her own initiative in doing it. And as we'll see, there were consequences to pay. And they were significant. But to be fair, Sarai is not the only one in the passage that does it. Sarai does it, Abram does it, and so does Hagar. The outline is in its usual place. We're going to look at five things tonight. We want to see the spiritual complication, the human solution, the resulting provocation, the divine intervention, and then the lack of of a resolution. And children, you're going to find your words in their normal place as well. Nothing like self-maledictory like last week. A um, little bit easier, but they're in their normal place. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we continue. Uh, Father, would you give us ears to hear your word this evening? Uh, I pray that you would prepare our hearts and minds for that which we are about to receive. We ask that you would Bless us, 
We ask, and I ask that you would grant uh, me grace and that you would fill me with your spirit, because as always, I'm weak and needy, and I'm in need of your assistance to do that which you've called me to do. I cannot do this on my own. And so would you bless not only the preaching but the hearing of your word tonight. And we pray these things for the sake of Christ and His church. Amen. Let's look first at the spiritual complication. It can be called a presenting problem. It can be called a crisis of belief. But whatever we call it, in verse 1, the issue was the same. Sarai... Abram's wife had borne him no children. In other words, she was barren. And this isn't news to us. If you remember from chapter 11, verse 30, we were told that she was barren. And the barrenness in and of itself wasn't the problem. Yes, she would have felt a great deal of shame and anguish and disgrace by those around her because it would have been, uh, she would have been treated as though she were a failure because she had no children. Um, But the spiritual complication was due to the promise that the Lord had made to Abram back in chapter 12. And of course, the promise that was reiterated last week in chapter 15. Not only had God promised Abram a son and offspring, but He had promised more offspring than he could count, more than the dust of the ground, more than the stars of the sky. But it's been 10 years. 10 years since he first received that promise, And Sarai is still barren. She's still childless. So how could that be? And in their minds, time's running out. They only have so long. So as I said last week, their circumstances were colliding with their faith. And it's something that we all can understand. It's something that we can attest to, can we not? So after 10 years, Sarai is apparently fed up. She is, um, well, her, her patience has worn thin. Her perseverance has run its course, and she's done. She can't do it anymore, and she wasn't shy regarding who she believed was at fault. In verse 2, it says, And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. For Sarai, the Lord was slow in keeping His promise, and He wasn't simply being passive. He was actively preventing her from having a child. And so the question, or really what she's saying is, how can God promise a son and then prevent me from having that son? And again, it makes sense, does it not? She was experiencing a great deal of frustration due to the tension between God being sovereign, which she readily admits. She's not in denial of that at all. She believes He's sovereign. The problem is she doesn't like it. She knows He's sovereign. She doesn't like that He's sovereign because His sovereignty is running, well, it's not coordinating with what she wants and what she thinks she needs. It's actually running counter to that. The bottom line is, in her mind, God is withholding the blessing of children, which left her no choice but to take matters into her own hands. If God wasn't going to do it right, 
she was just going to have to do it herself. It's as if she was saying, never mind, Lord, I'll just do it myself. But her solution, while completely normal and permissible and even moral when it came to their, their culture, right? Because the, the customs and the laws at the time um, said this was appropriate. And even pragmatically reasonable as far as the promise was concerned. But really, in truth, in the words of Calvin, it was at variance with the Word of God. Again, he says, however laudable Sarai's wish in regard to the promise. In the pursuit of it, she was guilty of no light sin, impatiently departing from the Word of God for the purpose of enjoying the effect of the Word. In other words, she came up with a plan to bring about the ends, and the ends would justify the means. And her plan was this. She chose to cast, instead of casting her care upon the Lord, and instead of praying to Him to open her womb, and instead of waiting on Him to do so in His time, and in total disregard for the sacredness of marriage that God had instituted, she orchestrated a plan of surrogacy in which she would exploit her own servant Hagar by giving her to Abram, whose connection to her, again in the words of Calvin, was so far illicit as to be something between fornication and marriage. Not really sure what was going on there, but it wasn't good. In order for her to have a child that by law could be the rightful heir, should Abram determine to take the child and claim it as his own. Fraught with issues. And in so doing, she in some way did exactly what Abram did to her back in chapter 12. Do you remember what he did? He didn't trust the Lord, and he turned his wife over to the Egyptians. Now what's she doing? She's not trusting the Lord, and she's turning Abram over to an Egyptian. The problem, or actually what makes matters worse is, if that weren't bad enough, Abram was complicit. Verse 2, it says, and Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. In other words, Abram obeyed his wife. In the words of Ligon Duncan, Abram the hero is suddenly reduced to Abram the boy under the pressures of Sarai. And Derek Kidner put it this way. He said, it's ironical. He said that, ironical. That after the heights attained in the last two chapters, Abram should capitulate to domestic pressure. Abram had slipped from faith to be guided by reason and the voice of Sarai, not the Lord. And before we're too hard on Abram, if you're married... We've been there, have we not? And then in verses 3 and 4, it says, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife, and he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And this sequence should sound very familiar. 
If you remember from back in chapter 3, the sequence played out, right? Eve, Eve wanted to, uh, or Eve was questioning the goodness of God. So she took the fruit and she gave it to Adam and he ate. Now we have Sarai questioning the goodness of God. She took her servant, gave her to Abram, and he slept with her. Like Eve, Sarai wanted to be like God. She had determined to fulfill the promise herself because in her mind she knew it was best. And like Adam, Abram failed to fulfill his responsibility to lead, guide, and protect his wife again. Because what he should have done is he should have stepped in and, and, and put his arm around her and said, this is really not a good idea. This is not a good idea. The Lord has made a promise. He's, he's confirmed it with an oath. We need, to, we need to wait on the Lord. We need to trust Him. We need to trust in His plan. We need to trust in His Word. His Word is sufficient. But His passivity got the best of Him. And He submitted to her instead of the Lord. And I want us to pause here. There are a lot of things that we could we could pause here and consider. I want us to think of one thing and how it manifests itself in, in, uh, in several ways. I want us to think of how we take matters into our own hands. I want us to consider how we do it ourselves and take our own self-effort and our own plans and our own strategies and our own pragmatic reasonableness and that which the culture calls uh, normal and permissible and even moral, and substitute them, or it, or them, for the promises of God, His work, and the work of the Holy Spirit. The most obvious, of course, uh, the most obvious way we do this is when we attempt to take our own self-righteousness, by which we try to merit and earn our justification, and secure our justification, and we substitute that for Christ's work and, and the rest that He provides through the grace alone, uh, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone gospel. This is why Paul uses this story, exactly why he uses this story in Galatians chapter 4 that we just heard as, far as, uh, as, as a part of our New Testament reading. But this, of course, only, this obviously only leads to extreme frustration. Because our justification is not a work, it's definitely not our work, but it's an act of God's free grace. Another way we do this, it's not as obvious, but another way we do this is when we take what the broader evangelical community of faith call, uh, or calls keys to spiritual growth, or what my friend uh, Ted Winger calls the uh, means of growth, and substitute them for the means of grace. The ten most common and promoted keys or means to spiritual growth that appear in a number of different variations are these. They'll be familiar to you. Going to church, reading your Bible, praying, fellowshipping with believers, serving other Christians, evangelizing the lost, giving financially to your church and missions, reading Christian literature, keeping a journal, 
and discipling a younger Christian. Now, there is nothing wrong with any one of those things on the list, right? Nothing wrong with any of those things. We should all go to church. We should all pray. We should all be involved in evangelism. We should be involved in outreach. We should serve one another. So it's not what's on the list or what the list includes that's problematic. What's problematic is what's not on the list. Did you hear? The list doesn't include the sacraments, which our Lord commands. The list is also problematic in that it views the way to grow spiritually as being all up to us. It fails to see that we are to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord, and we don't grow in grace by our works, but by the work of God's free grace through the Spirit or by the Spirit. It's not about what we do for God, but it's about what God does for us. It's not about our activity, but it's about the Holy Spirit's activity. This is why, or this is Paul's point in the first part of Galatians chapter 3. And how has God promised to bless us through His Spirit? It's by the simple means of grace, of word, sacrament, and prayer. Now, those are my two examples. Now, I want you to to think a little bit. What are other ways that you and I take matters into our own hands and do it ourselves and take our own efforts and plans and strategies and pragmatic reasonableness and things the world calls normal, permissible, and moral and substitute them for the promises of God, His work, and the work of the Spirit in your marriage or in our marriages? What about our parenting? What about the salvation of our children? What about our relationships with extended family and friends? Or in those times when our circumstances collide with our faith? How do we do that? Well, that brings us to the third point, which is the resulting provocation. Because while Sarai's plan did result in Hagar's pregnancy as she desired, it also led to a great deal of turmoil that she did not expect. And that's because she had not considered anyone but herself. She was only thinking about her And we don't know how Hagar felt toward Sarai before this, but we do know that now, at this point, she looked at her as unworthy of honor and unworthy of respect, and she was brashly confident in how she expressed it. And if we look at the whole picture, I think some of it was justified and some of it wasn't. On the one hand, she had every right to be upset. She's been exploited by Abram and Sarai. She's been taken advantage of. She's been used. So we understand the anger. But on the other hand, now that she's pregnant, there's a little bit of pride going on as well. 
There's a little bit of antagonistic gloating going on, something to the effect of, you know, I could give him a child, you couldn't. Look who's not a slave now. I'm a wife. Who do you think he's going to go home to tonight? And Sarah, of course, focused only on the latter. And she turned herself into a victim. And again, like Eve, she attempts to avoid responsibility by blame shifting. She says, may the wrong done to me be on you. She looks at Abram and says, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that I had con- or she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between me and you. This is all on you, Abram. It's all your fault. And in her mind, I was only trying to do what was right. I'm trying to get this promise fulfilled. I'm doing this for both of us. And now she's treating me like I've done something wrong. Right? She's acting like she, you can hear, you can hear her whining, right? She's, she's acting like she's better than me. The Lord knows exactly who's at fault. It's you. It's not me. I'm the innocent one in all of this. And there's some truth to what she said, actually, not that she's innocent, but that he's responsible. He is culpable. He should have said no. And maybe somewhere in the back of her mind, she knows that. And so now he's the, he's the out. I can blame him because he should have said no. And, but while he definitely bore responsibility, she's the one who had instigated this whole fiasco. If the Lord actually did step in and judge, she was not going to be exonerated. And if she had thought all that through, right, she would have been the first in line to receive justice. So if she had really thought all of that through, she probably wouldn't have said what she said. But again, things go from bad to worse. Things just get, keep getting worse. Look at verse 6. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. And this really makes me sad. Because as, Sarah, as Sarai's husband, and as an accomplice in Hagar's exploitation, but also as Hagar's husband and father of her child, he had the opportunity and really the responsibility to bring these two together and get this worked out. He knew the same law that would allow him to take Hagar and change her status as wife also said also said that he was to keep her in his home and care for her even if her status changed back to servant. But Sarai, being his first and only true wife, and the one he had to live with, was therefore the one that he determined um, he needed to keep the peace with at all costs. And so for the second time, his, his passivity is exercised, and he chooses not to fulfill his responsibility, and he doesn't protect Hagar or the child... And he changes her status from wife back to slave and then turns her over to Sarai and he knew that was not going to go well. 
In the words of Calvin again, in leaving Hagar to the will of her enraged mistress, Abram did not treat her as his wife. He also, in a certain way, undervalued the object of his hope that was conceived in her womb. And the end of verse 6 says, Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. In other words, Sarai just started to humiliate her, started to oppress her, started to make sure that she knew she was a slave and she was no longer a wife, made life miserable for Hagar. So much so that Hagar thought it would be better to run by herself, pregnant, back to Egypt. That was better than being where she was. Well, we know that God was working providentially behind the scenes. He was working behind the scenes making sure that the human solution of bringing about the ultimate fulfillment of the promise would not work. His goal, in the words of Derek Kidner, was to eliminate every means but miracle towards the promised birth. At the same time, though that was primarily, right, that was going on primarily, we know secondarily the conflict arose due to Sarai's plan. We also know it it arose due to Abram's passivity and his submission to her rather than his submission to the Lord. And we know that it was a result of both of them failing to wait patiently, failing to persevere in the midst of their trial. And that is a lesson we all need to heed and remember. We need to remember the consequences of doing things ourselves. Well, Sarai had mistreated her. Abram had abandoned her, but here's the good news. God saw and heard her. God saw and heard her, and he would intervene divinely. And again, we've got allusions to the fall. Moses said in verse 7 that the angel of the Lord, who we discover in verse 13, is a manifestation of the Lord himself. He found Hagar. The one who Pharaoh had given away, the one who Sarai and Abram had cast off, and he finds her almost home, as if he'd been looking for her. And while he didn't ask, where are you, he did ask, where have you come from and where are you going? And of course, he knew the answers. But it drew her out into a conversation that she was probably reluctant to have, and we understand that because here comes this stranger. He just shows up, and he knows her name and where she's come from, and, and, and her mistress's name. But she answers, and she answers honestly, and she confesses, I'm running from my, I'm running from my, uh, my mistress. And we would expect the Lord to continue to ask the questions, you know, follow up with, well, why are you doing that? But instead, He doesn't do that. He simply says, you need to go back. You need to return to her. And don't just return to her. I want you to return to her and submit to her. And that was the last thing she wanted to do. Why would she want to go back to the humiliation and to the oppression? She didn't want to go back to that environment 
It's what she had run from in the first place. And of course the Lord knew that. So he follows it up. And he follows it up with a promise that would have sounded very, very familiar to her because it was very, very familiar in that it was what the Lord had promised in a way to Abram as well. He promised her offspring that would be too numerable to count. So in other words, what he's doing is he's, he's causing her to look forward, not backward. He's wanting her to look ahead to the future instead of behind her in the past. He's wanting to give her something of hope to cling to in the midst of, of everything going on. I want you to go back. I want you to submit. But here's something that, that you can hold on to in the midst of that. Here's my word. Here's my promise. And in verse 11, he says, Behold, you're pregnant, you shall bear a son, you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. In case you forget what I've promised, every time you call your son's name, be reminded that I've heard you. Because his name means God hears. The Lord assured her that, that he had heard her, that he had not only heard her, but listened to her in the midst of, in the midst of her affliction. So while Abram and Sarah had caused her affliction, the Lord was coming along and saying He was going to take care of her in the midst of it. Though they had treated her harshly, He was going to treat her with kindness and compassion. To them, she was a commodity. To Him, she was someone to be concerned about and to love and to care for. They had not followed through on their end, but he would follow through on his. But we need to keep in mind, while she was blessed by God, the blessing would be different than the one Abram received. Abram's line would be a part of the history of salvation. Hers would not. His line would sojourn and eventually rest. Hers was going to sojourn and always be at unrest. His would experience eternal blessings. Theirs or hers was, was, would simply uh, experience temporal blessings. But regardless, it's at that point when she recognizes who this messenger is And Gordon Wenham describes it this way. He says, Hagar recognized God's presence in the angel and his mercy toward her. But as usual in such situations, as man comes to realize the presence of God, as he recognizes him, God has disappeared. But she recognized him nonetheless. The God she had heard so much about but probably had begun to question the veracity of due to Abram's and Sarai's behavior, had made himself known to her. He had revealed himself to her. And she was absolutely amazed. She was amazed that she had seen him and lived. And she was amazed that he had sought her out and cared for her. And she responded in faith, and she did what no other woman in Scripture will do. And she ascribed a name to him and called him a God who sees me. 
And the location where it all took place was given a, a name as well to memorialize what had happened. It was called the well of the living one who sees me. Two things I'd like for us to consider here. The first is a question. What kind of impression are we leaving on others in regard to who God is as we interact with them? I'm sure we all know a person, there's a person in our lives or we've and we've heard them say, or we've listened to a podcast and heard someone else say, or we've read a blog where someone has written that, you know, they'd be a Christian if it weren't for the Christians, or they'd be in church if it wasn't for Christians. Um, and the story here in Genesis 16 should actually cause us to think about ourselves in regard to that. What kind of impression are we leaving regarding God on those we encounter? Do they want to know Him more or know Him less? Do we, based on our lifestyles and interactions with others, cast them in a positive light or a negative light? Where was Hagar? What was her impression? How was she surprised? How is she amazed? And second, in the words of Ligon Duncan, God calls on us to mirror His own love for the defenseless, for the marginal, for the unimportant as an expression of our realization that He has loved us when we did not deserve it. We need to remember that Christ is the suffering servant. And as a severing servant, he will not break a bruised reed or quench a smoldering wick. When people give up on others due to their failures or, or due to their weaknesses or their social status or any other worldly sta standard, Christ does not write them off and neither should we. And we say, well, why is that? Why should we not write them off? And that's because when others give up on us, due to our failures and our weaknesses and our social status or on any other worldly standard, Christ never gives up on us. He has and He won't. We should do what we can to care for the poor and the weak and the oppressed and the marginalized because God has cared for us. He cares has cared and does care for us and will care for us. And that brings us to our last point. And I'll simply say this, Hagar returned, she had her son, she told Abram the story, Abram named him Ishmael, and over time Ishmael grew, or Abram grew to love Ishmael. We know that because next week we'll see after 13 years when God comes to reaffirm the covenant once again and, and give the covenant sign Abram begs the Lord to show favor to Ishmael. Ishmael became very, very dear to Abram. But if you notice this week, this, where the story ends is exactly where it began. She's still barren. The promise is still unfulfilled. They're left waiting. 
They're in the midst of their trial and their distress and their affliction. And as far as we know, the tension between Sarai and Hagar is not remedied. Listen to these words of Ligon Duncan. He says, Abram is right back where he started. He's not taken one step forward towards the fulfillment of God's promises toward him since the beginning of the chapter. Many troubles, many sorrows, but not one step forward in the progress of redemption because God is going to do things his way. Abram could have chosen to do it the easy way, but instead he chose to do the hard way. Kids, how often have you heard that? You can do this the easy way, or we can do this the hard way, usually coming from dad. Dr. Duncan goes on to say he did it in his, in his way, and it ended up bringing misery on his household. It didn't help his situation a bit. God was still going to have to do a miracle to bring a son of promise into the world through Sarai. A lot of needless difficulty. And there is definitely a lesson there for us. Listen to these words of Alan Ross. The message is timeless. It may be parallel to situations where God's people are impatient and turn in their anxieties to careless plans and calculations rather than crying out to the one who sees and hears, the only one who can help. The lesson is clear, he says, trust God's word and patiently wait for his promises. Foolishly to adopt worldly customs and expedience will only complicate matters and bring in great tensions. Any people who owe their existence to divine creation and election must live by faith. The good news from Hagar is that no matter what the affliction is or how it came about, God sees and God hears. So where do you look? In the midst of your trials in the midst of the afflictions, in the midst of the distress, where do you look? How do you respond? Do you respond in fear? Do you respond in haste? Do you respond trying to do things yourself? Is it a, is it a DIY life, spiritual life for you? Or do you respond in faith and in prayer? knowing that He cares for you? Do you cast all your cares upon Him because you know He cares for you? Do you know He sees you and do you know He listens to you in the midst of your affliction and your difficulties and your trials? Again, Christ will not break a bruised reed or quench a smoldering wick. So is your faith weak today? Is it, is it just smoldering in the midst of what you're experiencing? The good news is that the Lord's not going to put it out. He will fan the flame. He'll flame the embers into a flame and strengthen your faith. How will He do that? Through the word preached and read and through the sacraments. Come to the table tonight. Have your faith fanned. The Lord is gracious. We cannot outsend His grace. It's abundant. And He desires to lavish it upon us. By His grace, He searches for us. 
By His grace, He finds us. By His grace, He calls us to repentance. By His grace, He forgives us. By His grace, He calls us to submit to Him. By His grace, He sees us and hears us no matter where we are. Let's go to Him now in prayer. Father, by Your Spirit and grace, would You enable us to receive the Word with faith and love? May we lay it up in our hearts and practice it in our lives. Would You bless those who have heard Your Word preached, and may the seed sown in weakness be raised in power and show forth fruit of righteousness. It's in the name of the Lord Jesus I pray. Amen.